welcome to Writer Spark, the podcast with tips and tricks about fiction writing. I'm your host, Melissa Bourbon, national bestselling author, developmental fiction editor, writing coach, and instructor, and founder of Writer Spark Academy. When I started my writing journey, learning about the industry and the craft of writing was not as easy as it is now. I wish I knew then what I know now. And that is what Writer Spark is all about. I'm paying it forward, so to speak. I want new and aspiring authors to learn from those who came before and who are living the writing life. There are episodes on craft topics and there are conversations with authors because I strongly believe that we learn from each other. Wherever you are on your writing path, WriterSpark is for you. Check out WriterSpark's courses on our website, www.writersparkacademy.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please follow and share with your writing friends. Today, my guest is USA Today bestselling author Kelsey Browning. Kelsey writes contemporary romance, romantic suspense, and she has a collaborative cozy mystery series with Nancy Nagel, who has been a guest right here on this podcast. Kelsey has an economics background as well as being a writer, so she's both a word and a numbers person. And today we are talking about the financial side of being a writer, something that we all need to think about, but we maybe don't always think about as explicitly as would be beneficial for us. So we're talking about how to strengthen your financial life as a writer. Very interesting lots of great takeaways. So grab a cup of something tasty, settle in and get ready to ignite your writer spark. I am here today with Kelsey Browning. Welcome Kelsey. So nice to have you here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, You have quite a background writing in contemporary romance, romantic suspense, and co-authoring a cozy mystery series with Nancy Nagel, who has been a guest on this podcast, actually. Right. She is a delight, and I love your Southern, what, I'm sorry, what is it called? It's the Southern. Southern, uh, seasoned Southern sleuths, and it is quite the mouthful. <laughs> I love the alliteration. So you have the seasoned Southern sleuths with Nancy Nagel, which is so fun. Um, before we get started, on our topic, which is finances for authors mm-hmm. and how to, as you said earlier, know where your money is and what you're actually making. I like to start with your origin story. So just kind of hearing your path to publication. Um, well, as with many people, a uh, path to publication came with a life transition. For some of us, it has to do with health issues or job changes or whatever. And so I started writing seriously when my husband, my son, and I moved overseas. So I'm from Texas originally, which is where I'm coming to you from today. And uh, we got an opportunity to go and live in Qatar, which is most Americans will say Qatar, but it's we don't really say it correctly either way, but Qatar, which is just off of Saudi Arabia. And we were there for about five years. And that was the first time in my adult life that I hadn't, I didn't have a a job when I went over there. So I did some project work. But when my husband left, he left a few months earlier than my son and I, I started dabbling. Because of course, as with most of us, I had always been an avid reader. And so I finally had the time when I was over there in the desert with, you know, 120, 130 degree heat. (laughs) I can't even imagine that. (laughs) 
Texas is bad enough. (laughs) Well, and it's funny because we just recently moved from Georgia. We lived there for almost 10 years. And I tell people, well, North Georgia was the coldest place I've ever lived. And they're like, "Uh, (laughs) it's not that cold there. (laughs) So my assistant and I laugh back and forth. She lives in Ohio. So we're always sort of comparing weather. And then when Heather has to start mowing the grass, as opposed to we've already mown it, mown it, mowed it, (laughs) mowed it twice down here. Um, So it's, yeah, it's kind of fun. And my son is in North Carolina. So it's always interesting. Okay. He's in Asheville. And so, yes. Is he in school there? Um, actually, no, he's working. So, um, and he went up there from, we lived in Athens, Georgia for 10 years. So anyway, um, but yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because my husband, when I'm saying, oh, it's hot here in Texas, he'll say, gosh, I mean, we've lived somewhere way hotter <laughs> than this, but. That humidity will get you though. <laughs> it is true. And that is one thing it would blow in and out because you're there in the Gulf. Um, when we were in Doha, which is the main city in Qatar, and it would blow in and out in Texas, it blows in and never leaves. <laughs> exactly. It blows in and settles, lays you down like a blanket. Exactly. So we lived in uh, North Texas for 10 years. So, okay. Yeah. So, you know, so around Dallas ish area. Yeah. We were actually in Denton, but yeah. Okay. Yes. The very North of Texas. Then. Yes. Yeah. So when you started, um, did you start with your contemporary romance or what did you, what was your first foray into writing? I did. And that's was my first published series is it's called Texas Nights and it is out of publication right now. Um, and I need to get it back up. <laughs> and so I wrote four, uh, I wrote four contemporary romances. However, Nancy and I started writing this series while I was writing that series. So it's interesting because the first book came out in my contemporary and then the first book came out in Cozy Mystery. And I'll be honest, Cozy Mystery was never really on my radar before Nan and I got together. Mm, I want to tell you it was at Romantic Times in Chicago and we, she and I can get together and talk all night long if we don't control ourselves. And so I was telling her a family story and we woke up in the morning and she said, we need to write that book. And I said, I don't, I don't know anything about writing a cozy mystery. And she's like, I I mean, she really didn't either. Right. (laughs) She's like, we got this for both of you. Yeah. (laughs) You know how Nancy is. If you've, you know, been around her much at all, the fact that she doesn't know how to do something is never a barrier for her. Not so, mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, so that was really great for me to be around because she, uh, let's be honest, she'll just put you in the boat and take you down the river before you even know you've gotten in the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. a great way to, yeah, to express that. Okay. So wh- tell me about your romantic suspense. Um, so that was a different type of collaboration in that Nancy and I write books together. We are both involved in writing the actual book. Um, and I can explain how we do that if you're interested, but my romantic suspense was a collaboration where we all wrote in the series, but we wrote separate books. So it was tightly plotted, um, and the world we built together and the series are you know, are tightly intertwined because they're 
brothers and sisters books. But so it was a different kind of interesting collaboration in that way. So I would say the editing process on that is a bit easier just because it's not being filtered through two people. But you also don't necessarily get the advantages of co-writing. And they're just like with anything, pros and cons to co-writing and to collaboration, I guess. Yeah, I have a collaborative series that I'm part of in the same way. So three other authors, one town, one sort of shared world, some Mm -hmm. crossover characters, but we each are writing our own. Right. So yeah, that's interesting. It's a fun, you know, kind of side project. It is. And for a while I was doing primarily that um, because, I mean, these were, you know, these were bigger, when I say bigger, I mean, probably in the 90,000 word range. So it, and it really stretched me again because I was not a romantic suspense writer either. And so we went into this, two of my longtime critique partners were suspense writers. And I said, girls, I don't, I don't write cop characters. I don't write, you know, I don't write this stuff. And so they let me write regular people. <laughs> oh, good. So it all worked out. That they're not all the same, right? That's why you have different people with different voices. Exactly. So I think the, the biggest challenge I found in the collaboration is not letting the world get too big. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Because you're so used to controlling your story world and you just throw people in. You're like, wait a minute, we already have somebody who does that. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be aware and knowledgeable about your own micro world within the bigger world and your own characters, as well as everybody else's, which just adds that whole layer of complication. It does. And I will tell you, probably the two biggest complications that we had, one, we decided two of our characters were twins, but another writer and I wrote those and they had a their backstory, the critical piece in their backstory was the same. And they were there at the same time. Oh, goodness. OK, we didn't think that through. And then also you had to make sure when you were introducing characters that were going to be your protagonists later that somebody didn't sort of introduce them in a negative uh, or less than, you know, I don't know, less than intriguing way, let's say. And so uh, it happened where I said to somebody, hey, please don't say this about my character. Nobody's going to want to read his story. And I did the same thing. And another author said, yeah, don't please don't have him do that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's complicated, yeah. But fun, but still a fun project. Exactly. All right. Well, let's jump into our topic today, which is talking about finances, which I think is actually something that's not talked very explicitly about very often. And so I'm very interested because I think I can certainly learn from what you have to say. You were telling me earlier before we started that you were in economics major economics background. So, you know, so you come to your love of numbers very naturally. (laughs) And I would love to hear about, and I know our listeners would love to hear about, you know, how as writers do we, should we be thinking about numbers and sales and keeping track of these things? Yeah. And it's, I, I do a presentation called the M word math for authors, uh, just to try to, you know, lure people in a little bit and tell them it's not as bad as they think it is because so many of us are so highly creative 
Um, and the math side is just not, not for everyone, but it, it feels intimidating for some people if that just wasn't their first love. I, I feel quite fortunate because I have both an analytical and hopefully a creative side. Um, and so for me, before I became published, of course, I kept track of expenses and all of that, but you know that you're not making money. And so it's almost like I looked at it differently. Now, when I became published and started bringing in money, my whole outlook on how I spent money changed. So, I mean, I think the biggest, I say the biggest, they're all big things for me, is that you have to know what's happening. And so many times we'll talk about five-figure, six-figure, seven-figure authors. And what many people don't realize is that's a revenue number. And that's great. Um, and I'll try to keep this clean. I have a very, um, I cuss a lot, so I'm going to try not to do this in this <laughs> podcast. But <laughs> so I'll say, tell people that doesn't mean what they think it means, right? right? Because I can be a six-figure author, but if I've spent all but $1 making those six figures, I have a dollar in profit. Mm -hmm. That is not a good business model. Um, and so I think the thing that really sort of made me jump off into the specifics for authors was there's a book by uh, Michael McCallowitz called Profit First. So he's basically teaching not just authors, but any small business person what is essentially the old envelope model. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the yeah, so put, put your money, your cash in there. And that's how you budget when you're out of money, you're out of money. Right. And so you've got a hundred dollars and you have this much in your envelope for groceries, this much for entertainment, what, whatever your, your little piles or buckets are. And he said, you know, if you're, if there's no profit bucket, <laughs> that's a problem. And so it was interesting because he says, you know, if we put all of our money in one place, all we do is we look at that number and we think it's spendable. So it goes back to that pay yourself first principle that we learn in personal finance. But so few of us do it in our business because we don't really think of businesses having savings accounts, I guess, or investments or that type of thing. And so I really started using that model to see if I could get my expenses to a recommended range, also have a, a bucket for profit, a buffet, bucket for taxes, and only spend a certain amount on expenses. And so that was, I really had to work into that because as with most people, I was spending the vast majority of my income on expenses. And that happens when you're new. But I will tell you, there were a lot of things that I dropped very quickly. <laughs> so my... Like, like what? What did you drop very quickly? Well, and it's going to be different for everyone. I mm -hmm. will say that. But because I'm so numbers minded, I dropped a lot of conferences, honestly, and travel. So my, and again, this is just my model. And basically, if something's not either supporting my ability to make money, or I'm not learning something, and I'm not saying you don't learn things at conferences, I've definitely I do professional development, but those are my criteria. 
one of those two things. Well, and I think that that what you need to learn and how much you feel like you need to devote to that changes at different times in your career. You know, I did devote time to conferences early on too. I don't go to any anymore because I don't feel like I get any return on that. You know, right. I might learn a few things, but I'm already you know, well-established in my career selling books. I don't feel like that's the best way to spend my money. So, right. Yeah. And, that, and I think that's, that's a great point. Right. And when, when you're first published and say you've got one book, it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend a great deal of money on marketing because you just can't make the return on it. And so mm-hmm. when people ask me how they should spend, yeah, that's something that you have to sit down and really look at where they are, what's important to them individually uh, but so for me, I, I did begin to cut little things that that weren't creating a return for me. Mm-hmm. And but again, I think you're right where you are in your career and what's important to you really drives that. That I hate to say the word formula, but I'm going to say a formula for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think budgeting as well. And I budget based on tax categories because it's it's easy then at the end of the year to really see where you came out. And that's how I run my profit and loss statements. And I think that's a big thing that many authors are missing. They do not run a P, what's called a PL in the business world. And to me, I sort of, mm, I mean, that's how I measure my success every year. Mm-hmm. I don't even, I wouldn't know where to begin to do that. And I've been, my first book came out in 2008. So <laughs> that's well, a long time to not have been doing something. <laughs> and I say that because now some people are able to keep numbers in their head marvelously. I'm not necessarily one of those people. So I need to sort of see it in black and white on the page. Mm-hmm. And so it really would come through your accounting software. However, you yeah. keep track. I happen to use something called Wave and under a certain amount or a certain, I don't know, you know, it changes in every, you know, with every software. But the part that I use is still free at this point. And there are reports baked into that software. And in many of them, it is. And you just have to figure out how to set it up correctly. But it's not hard in some of the newer software. So so for somebody that does not have a numbers mind, those things feel really overwhelming to me sometimes. But luckily, I have a good writing friend who is also an accountant or was. Uh, So do you have a separate bank account for just for your stuff and a separate savings account just for your Absolutely. I actually have more than that, but I'm I'm actually about to scale back just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the first things that I did when I created my LLC is and I did that so that I could separate my personal finances from my business finances. And I know it's a pain for people, but I really think it's critical because you want to clear the waters. I started to say demuddy, which I know is not a word, but you need to demuddy your waters as much as possible. Plus, you know when you're overspending that way, because like you said, when you've got nothing, you got nothing. So in my world, um I have, uh, I have an account that, and I'm, I want to tell you correctly. So let's just say I have a checking account that everything comes into. That's where all of my money comes into, but I don't spend out of that account. 
I transfer a certain amount of that account into my expense account. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a pain, but once you get the hang of it, it took me, it would take me all of five, 10 minutes every month. Then money also goes into a profit and tax account so that at the end of the year or quarterly, depending on, you know, what kind of money you're making and how you pay your taxes, that money is sitting there. And I will tell you, and as with most authors, you know, your your income, your revenue may go up and down from year to year, just depending on all sorts of things. Since I instituted this type of system, and I'm about to do a double negative, I have never not made a profit. Okay. So it's, and I'm not saying, oh, it's a, you know, a billion dollar profit, but it is still a profit. Mm-hmm. And because I, I'm really keeping good control over my expenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, as you said earlier, it's very easy to not even know what you're spending on all of these little things that add up Amazon ads and Facebook ads and Canva and book yeah. br- brush and book bub and yeah. all of these, uh, you know, various things that you feel like you need to use and pay Mm -hmm. for and you don't even know what's coming in and what's going out. Well, it's kind of like the subscription, right? I know, you know, you get Hulu and you get HBO and you, and and it sort of piles on and you just automatically pay those and renew, Mm -hmm. or of course they have models that just automatically renew on you. And so, yes, it's exactly that. And I think it's wonderful in the world of commercial fiction. One of the biggest things that I've learned is it's such a sharing community, which is wonderful. So we're always telling each other about the newest tool or, Hey, this is really working for me, which is wonderful. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, we feel like we must do often all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that's where it really starts to add up. So do you recommend creating an LLC? Because I've read and heard pros and cons for that. Is there a certain level at which you feel like that's really beneficial? I will tell you that I, I probably did it for maybe slightly different reasons than some people. I LLC'd because it is at least a layer of protection between your business and your personal finances. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that kind of protection in between. Mm-hmm. And some people will do it once they get large enough or they'll go to an S-corp model. And really, that depends on your state, honestly, because, of course, our income tax issues, at least statewide, differ. Mm-hmm. And uh, also what it costs to LLC. It's very expensive in some states. It was $50 a year in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So I think and this is where and I've, I've spoken with people and I, I do some consulting on this as well because everybody's situation is slightly different. So someone in California may say, oh, yeah, you need to do this because it's going to save you this, this and this. Well, it does in California, mm-hmm. but maybe it doesn't in North Carolina. It, it, you know, so you have to look and you also have to look at what your personal goals are. Mm-hmm. I think that's critical. We always assume that people want that the goal is money. And for some people, it's not. The goal mm-hmm. is experience. Mm-hmm. And maybe for them, going to a conference or going to a reader event is a great use of money because it feeds something in them. And that's great. That's fine. You just know that's what you're doing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I think you need to think explicitly about it, though, and really understand what your goals are. And I think so many of us, myself included, have spent many years not doing that. In fact, this year, I have formed a kind of a mastermind group with two other people. Now, they're fine artists and I'm a writer, but we're all creatives. And our entire intent is is accountability, setting goals and accountability towards those goals with one another. And I can tell you, it's only beginning of March and it's made a significant impact in just my thinking and um, I think my intention with how I'm doing things and what I'm doing. So just the fact that I'm thinking so much more explicitly about it this year than I ever have before is key and, and it's very impactful. You know, so yeah, I think that's the start. Well, I hope you do, if you haven't already done a session on that, I think that's such a great topic and to explain to people. And sometimes I think it's so good to have people in a mastermind or small group like that, that they don't do the same thing that you do because they'll come to it with a slightly different perspective that could open up your thinking and that you've, you know, we all get narrowed in sometimes. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I had a long-term critique and plotting partner and she wrote historical. I hate to admit this, although I am certified to teach history in Texas, uh, I know nothing about, you know, (laughs) British history and all the regency and all of that. So sometimes I would push and say, well, is this possible? Because I was coming at it from outside of those rails, Mm -hmm. outside of. So I think that can happen when it comes to your business as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that it's it's kind of the whole political um, theory or leadership theory, right, that you don't surround yourself with sycophants and yes men. You want to surround yourself with people who have different points of views and different perspectives so that you can absorb all of that information. And I think it's the same for for us, for any type of person who wants to experience growth, right? You want to to be able to broaden and widen your what you're taking in from people and what you're learning from people. And that's so much what this podcast is about it, because I think we have so much to learn from each other, you know, and having these conversations that we don't always have the opportunity to have or listen to. Right. Because as you become multi-published, you get busier and busier with things, right? And, and as you said before, sometimes the topics that we need, we don't even know (laughs) what they are. Exactly. Um, And so many times I think we do come across those, those topics that open our minds kind of by accident or just meeting the right person. That's when I like to believe the universe is putting things in our path. Um, but it, that becomes harder to just do a presentation at a conference or, or whatnot. It's so, and I, it's one thing that I did hate losing was sort of that, that ability to continue learning at that level once I got published and the deadlines came and things like that, but also because you've, you've learned all that, that foundational type of thing. Right. And so your name has been different. Yeah. Well, and we, we begin writing because we love writing. We don't begin writing because we want to sit down with the financial statement. Right. Um, yeah. And we don't begin writing with the expectation that we're going to, you know, hit it out of the park with our income. Right. But what I've found is that we do ourselves 
a great injustice by not treating this at least at certain times during the month and year as a business because Mm -hmm. that's what it is for most published authors, not all. And again, I have no problem with that. If profit Mm -hmm. is not your motive, your goal, uh, you do what you, you know, what is for you. But for many of us, we would like to make some money. It makes life a little easier. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah. Otherwise you feel like you're spinning your wheels and why are you doing this? I mean, you understand at the beginning and for the first however many, you know, couple of years or books it's going to take to kind of get that foothold, but you do want to progress in that income and, and feel like you are earning some semblance of a living right. <laughs> through this path that we've chosen. That's difficult. Yeah. And like I said, you know, so we many times think too, that you've got to be that, that six figure author and, and many times that's at, at a level when you are multi-published, those are the types of sessions that we hear, how to be a six-figure author. But right. I guess what I'd also like people to know is that you do not have to be a high revenue author to be a decent profit author. Mm-hmm. And that that group of authors that, you know, used to be sort of named mid-listers can make a decent profit if they pay attention to what goes in and what comes in and what goes out. Right. Because as you said, you can be that six figure author and be spending, you know, half of that to make those sales, but you can be a mid lister earning, you know, somewhere much lower than, but spending much less than that in your expenses. And so it can be very equalizing. It it can. And part of it also depends. Like some people just love the like maybe they love the chase of the revenue. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that is absolutely fine. That's really not me personally, um, but it's why, as we we said before, knowing what your goals are become important because how do you measure the success? And some people may see this financial talk as they're like, oh, that's not you know that that's not really what I want to do. Okay, that's absolutely fine. But if you don't have any type of understanding of what your definition of success is. You're just, you're dog paddling the whole time. That's it. I love that. I think that's where we need to start really is understanding or defining success to us. What, why are we doing this and, and how do we, how do we know we've been successful or what would it take for us to say, yes, I'm a success. Yes. And, And, and like you said, with, with learning that could change during your career. Yeah. Many of us just start out wanting to see our name on a book that is out there and being read. or mm-hmm. And so it is fine for your goals to change over the years. And I do think it's something you need to revisit because we go through not only different times in our careers, we go through different times in our personal lives as well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to, I mean, you have to make allowances for those things. So... Yeah, I think it's really important, but someone doesn't have to feel like they're stuck with the same goal forever either. Yeah, so true. Uh, So, okay, if we were to kind of zone in on a few tips for any writer at whatever stage who is thinking right about now, like, oh, I should start thinking about my finances a little more explicitly. (laughs) What, What would a few of those tips be? Where do you even start? Number one, you you have to be tracking what you're 
spending and what you're bringing in. And of course, early on, you're just going to be spending, even if it's just to go to uh, conferences or a course that you're taking online. Mm -hmm. So you must track, even if it's just a spreadsheet or it's your shoebox at the end of the year, which I admit makes me shudder a little bit. Um, But whatever works for you, a spreadsheet will work fine and a notebook will work fine. So you don't have to have fancy software or whatever. Um, But that also makes it so much easier on you come tax time, because even if you're just starting out, if you're planning to write for profit, then you need to be introducing these expenses to your accountant or in your in your tax work. And yeah. I am not a tax accountant. I am not a tax attorney. So I don't know what the hobby loss laws are right now. Mm-hmm. But I started tracking that the first year, second year that I started writing because I mm-hmm. knew then what I wanted. So there's that. You must you must track to, <laughs> to some extent. Um, and set your goals like we talked about. What is it over the next, let's say, year or two? And then that's going to help you if you want to be very organized because you know that profit is a goal for you, then go ahead and start finding a financial system. And I'm going to say software at this point that will work for you. And there are so many out there for small business people. Mm -hmm. And also don't assume that you must pay for every piece of software out there. There's so many different softwares that you can use as a solopreneur, as a one-person business, that they don't end up costing you much or anything. And you use Wave, you said? I use Wave. Um, it's, it's worked for me really well. And to me, it's a fairly simple system. Many mm-hmm. people will start and they'll use QuickBooks or FreshBooks. And I revisit those every once in a while for different things. And I have yet to feel compelled because many times we don't have clients. I mean, some of us do because we do coaching and things like that. But mm-hmm. the normal author is mainly going to have income from the retailers. And so it's really a pretty simple system, except the fact that you end up with these, you know, little bits of royalties <laughs> coming from yeah. different places. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Um, so I think those are two of the largest things, because if you don't have a system in place, it's really hard to get to the next step and start projecting a budget for the next year or deciding what your most important expenses are or mm-hmm. figuring out, did you really mean to spend $800 in postage last year? <laughs> I mean, <Yeah>. so <laughs> that's the thing. It makes it very clear. And you're like, oh, oh, wow. Hmm. Didn't realize that had happened. Yeah. Um, so I think knowledge in this particular area is powerful and probably some accountability with somebody if it's not your thing, if you really don't like it. So going back to um, what you said about cable, you know, HBO and Hulu and all of that, it, those subscriptions, you don't even know what you're spending. I don't know what I... <laughs> I need to do some checking myself, honestly. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when I think about, okay, what am I spending on Canva and Book Rush and book funnel and, you know, all of these things. And, 
yeah, I need to go do some serious digging <laughs> to figure that out because you just, you're like, oh, I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. And in the end, you don't even know what you're paying. And that's why too, I mean, I, I tend to do my categories so that they will bunch up under those tax categories, but I break out in certain ways um, in and I hate to, I mean, categorization is really critical to me because sometimes I'll pull something up and I'll think, whoa, what, what was that? What did I do? And then I open up that particular category and I'm like, oh yeah, that was all my web hosting for two years or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. But categorization makes it so much easier to, you know, see again, you've got a thousand dollars in subscription or software and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. But then when you go in, you're like, yes, necessary. Oh, mm, maybe not necessary or whatever. Mm -hmm. And to be able to break it down like that for me, here's a good example. So professional development for me, um, which is a bigger category, more of a tax category is broken down into books um, and then uh, conferences and classes. Mm-hmm. So I can easily see, and of course, conferences tend to be highly expensive even before you add in the travel on it. So it's very easy to sort of look at that and think, hey, you know, would I have rather that $2,000 been in my profit category? Yes. <laughs> yeah. you know, and some people will say, but there are opportunities at conferences and you're absolutely right. So it's always, it's a trade-off. Yeah. And, and you have to be able and willing to accept the fact that those benefits or those opportunities are not necessarily quantifiable. It's true. Absolutely. You have to be okay with that. Yes. And that's why I say sometimes I'll spend something on, on a course or coaching or whatever, that's not going to hit my bottom line directly, Mm -hmm. but I know it's necessary for my career progression or sanity or whatever. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay, Kelsey, so many great things to think about. You've really got me thinking about what I need to do <laughs> to go in and Sorry. start rectifying something. No, it's good. It's good because I think, as you said, knowledge is power, you know, and we need to not have our heads in the sand about what we're making and what we're spending. Better to be informed than to know, you know, and then make some informed decisions. Right. And probably the first time that you, you do this, it, it may not look, it's probably not going to look the way people want it to. But mm-hmm. again, that's, that's great in that you're like, okay, well, now I know this. Now I know that I'm spending this amount on software or whatever it is. And you'll surprise yourself. I surprise myself, myself still. And again, I'll go in and think, Ooh, hmm, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's a good budget for, postage and I need to tell, you know, my assistant, hey, we're only going to spend this much a month on postage or, or whatever. And that's another thing that if you have collaborations with people in whatever way, mm-hmm. it can be important because you also let them know this is this is all I can do. This is my budget for this. And, um, you know, I think budgeting gets a bad rap. It doesn't always mean that you can't have things. It just means that you need to prioritize the things that are most important to you. So. Yeah, which is hard to do. And I think we live in a society where, you know, we want that instant gratification. We want the things that we want. And it's so easy to get them, even if we don't have cash in hand. Absolutely. Difficult. It takes discipline and it, it takes the desire, I think, to, well, to know and- where you are. 
one thing people may want to think about is you don't have to do this every day. Some people might start out, even if they just did it at the end of the year, that would be a step forward. Mm -hmm. And then maybe quarterly. I tend to do mine monthly because I'm, you know, I like to know and I like to know where I am at the end of the quarter. But I think for many authors, quarterly would be just fine because it's a long enough time to see a trend, but you still have a lot of flexibility in making changes in your spending Mm -hmm. for that year or whatever. Um, Well, I think so. I think another tip would be to start in a way that works for you, whether that is annually or twice a year or quarterly. And as you feel motivated or inspired to increase that frequency, do so, but at least get started in some way that that feels reasonable and doable. Don't just like anything else, don't jump in with both feet in into a process that, you know, you're not going to be able to sustain. And you, you know, if it's not something that that calls to you otherwise, you're, you don't love numbers, you mm-hmm. need to factor that in as well and say, okay, you know, this is all I can handle. This is all I can, <laughs> can stomach. And yeah. I, I do have one other thing you had asked about tips. And I, I'm going to caveat this and say this is for authors who are at the point that they're spending marketing dollars. Mm-hmm. This is another really critical thing I just want to point out. Um, and it's not always the easiest, but by the time you're multi-published, you know, I think this is important that you need to know how to run a return on investment calculation. It's not always going to be perfect, but it will tell you something about your marketing. And, and again, that's a, it's a little bit more advanced topic. And I even have, I've worked with authors on how to try to calculate ROI on an ongoing series, because as we know, if you calculate, you know, what am I making on an ad that is for a free book? You can't just calculate it on that particular book. So, right, yeah, um, through for the rest of the series. Absolutely. So, and even I have done it for several of my series, and there are times I sit there and I think, okay, now how do I do this? But when we know those read-through rates and whatever, I can usually um, get to a point where I can tell you what you can spend per click for an ad to be profitable. Mm. and it takes a little digging and it takes some knowledge that, okay, this is not the end all be all number. It's just, you know, but in that area, you don't want to be spending a dollar 20 per click when this calculation is showing 35 cents per click. So again, a bigger, more advanced topic, but I just want to throw that out because a lot of people will say that things are working. They don't really know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not looking at the bottom line, the whole picture. You're looking at just one little tiny picture. And for indie authors, you have the added complexities of editing and cover art and all of these other things that you have to front load before you can even put your book out. And so it's it's like the advance, right? You've got to earn back that advance before you can Absolutely. even begin to look at profits. Well, and this is probably going to, going to want to make most people just put their fingers in their ears and go la, 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 la. And um, I do also run P&Ls per book. Now, not all the time, but I want to know about the time that a book will break even on those upfront costs mm-hmm. because, yeah, that first royalty, those royalties that come in early on, you're like, whoop, whoop. Well, when, though, have you yeah. paid yourself back? So yeah. I do that. And, and I think it's because I've come out of, I, I mean, and 
areas where you need to make sure that your projects are physically sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do because, and same things maybe for audiobooks, and we know those are, that's a long tail earner. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I don't want to look at it because I'm pretty sure that um, my heirs maybe. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, depending. So again, that's a, an, a more advanced topic. And some people will say, you know what, that's, that is too granular for me. And that's fine. But mm-hmm. it is, it's an option for people. Yeah, it's a lot to think about. It is. And yeah. I will say too, that for me, I hired a bookkeeper fairly early on. And my bookkeeper deals with all of the, mm, all the, getting all my transactions put in. She balances my checking account and bank accounts and does that sort of thing and making sure the royalties come in correctly so that I can focus on these bigger trends and bigger things. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. So, so many things to think about and such, yeah, good content. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And you mentioned earlier before we started that you had some resources. I do. I've got a couple of things on my website that will, I know that I have a presentation that I did at least the slides and will give some information on what a PL is, what re- revenue versus profit is, how you run an ORI calculation, um, things like that, that may be, you know, just not something some people have heard or have dealt with in the past. Okay. All right. And that information will be in the show notes for everybody. Great. Okay. So what do you have up next in your writing career? That is an excellent question that I do not know the answer. (laughs) I do not know the answer to. Um, Since we've moved, as with so many people over the pandemic and shortly thereafter, we've just had a lot of life happening And so I'm still trying to figure out my next project. I've been playing, my head has been playing with some paranormal midlife uh, types of things. So I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I get, obviously you can tell by my genre hopping, I get bored rather easily. So it's not the best career, uh, probably the best career model, but it's the one that works for me. So yeah, I get that. I have, I write in a couple of different genres too. And, you know, there, you have to keep yourself happy and be motivated and inspired to write. You know, to me, it's just terrible to be writing something (laughs) that I'm not interested in, you know, or that I've grown bored with. Exactly. So, and I think that's, you know, you have to, it's, it's a hard balance because your readers may want more of the same thing and you've got to sort of get to that place where people are fairly happy, but you're not just killing yourself doing that. And I, yeah, I can only write so many books with the same characters in them before I'm really ready to kill all the characters, which does tend to upset the readers a little yeah. bit. <laughs> imagine why but yeah I'm with you when your protagonist falls down a well and you don't bring them out it does tend to upset people so I'm <laughs> I try not to go to go that far but I've always got to have a new challenge in my writing and usually it has to do with occupation or something so I can learn something during the process it's kind of why I'm attracted to paranormal even though I don't have any out right now there's always something that can be added to those worlds yeah yeah I think they're very fun to write also 
Well, thank you again for spending time with us, especially during, you know, getting settled in your new house and, and mm -hmm. life in Texas. And I appreciate it. And you just offered so much great information that we all need to be thinking about. So I appreciate that. Well, I know it's not the sexiest topic, but... <laughs> But unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo, finances. This is going to be a hot one. <laughs> so, well, thank you, Melissa. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you again. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, talking with Kelsey Browning. There are resources in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. And if you're like me and like bookish and writerly products, check out the WriterSpark Tea Public store. That link is also in the show notes. Remember to like, follow, subscribe to this podcast. Check us out on YouTube as well. And look for our content and courses and resource books at www.writersparkacademy.com. I'm Melissa Bourbon. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy writing.